Good morning, everyone. Good morning, good morning. Make yourselves comfortable. Good job, most of you sitting towards the front here. We appreciate that. Uh, we have a controversial topic today. Very exciting. Uh, so we should probably start with prayer. Let's go ahead and do that. Father, we ask your blessing on this time. We pray as we peer into your word, you would help us to see just very simply what it says, and you would give us humility and joy and clarity as we focus around uh, this doctrine, Father, as we consider election. We ask your blessing on this time, Father. Keep us from any kind of cold uh, sense of a distant God. Father, I pray as we just study these glories, you would work in each heart and in, in this room a deep appreciation, a deep joy, a gratitude at the grace you have shown uh, in calling us and writing our names in your book and making us yours. Father, we ask for humility in that. We ask for wisdom, uh, and we thank you for uh, all that you are in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this semester in theological equipping class, uh, we are studying the doctrine of salvation. Fancy term for that is soteriology. It comes from the Greek word soteria, salvation. Uh, and uh, today, I, I think Jared might be mad at me because Jared has assigned me to teach on predestination this week, and he has me preaching on paying your taxes next Sunday. So I don't know what I did, but Jared clearly is telling me something. Uh, he's, he's trying to, I don't know, he's just angry. You know how he can be. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, but there is no denying predestination election is a doctrine of some controversy. There's strong opinions around uh, these kind of things. And uh, what I think would just be helpful to start our time, let's just get him on the board. What are some of the objections people have, you can say that, you know, I can say that generically so you don't feel like you have to out yourself, but maybe objections or, or questions, difficulties you yourself have. Why is the doctrine of election controversial? Free will. Free will. Who said that? Randy. Good job, Randy. Free will. Wow. This, there we go. I'm learning to use markers again. All right. What else? Free will is a question when it comes to election. Why else is it a, a controversial, difficult doctrine? Unfair, so fairness. That seems unfair. Okay, why else? Or what else? Why evangelize? I heard someone else saying something. You're going to have to give me a second. Why evangelize? Question. Who said something? Dan? I was going to say the same thing. But Sam said it first. Oh, were you going to, how were, <laughs> you can't top Sam, so what are you going to do? That's true. All right. Any other thoughts? Why, why is this touchy? Ooh, cold God. Cold uh, God? I'll put a question mark. Otherwise, I feel like, you know, Mike get struck by lightning. Um, that's a joke. Huh? Puppets. Ooh. Are we Puppets? Or robots sometimes will be the, the accusation. Are we puppets slash robots? Fatalism. Fatalism. Man, that's a great word. Fatalism. Fatalism? 
I'm starting to add question marks. Other thoughts? We've got a lot of good ones. Ooh, control. Uh, I'll just, yeah, takes away control. <laughs> takes away control. My five-year-old does have better handwriting than me. Um, anything else? I think we got a pretty good list. Are we missing anything obvious? I mean, these are, yeah. These are all the kind of things that people bring up when I talk with them about the doctrine of election. So, and these are things that I've wrestled with. So, yeah, great. Uh, another objection we actually don't have on the board. Uh, maybe we do a little bit. Uh, why are so many Calvinist jerks? I mean, seriously. There's, a, a, there's literally like a culture around this idea that uh, those who hold to Reformed theology are just arrogant. They're just, you know, they're hitting you over their head, over the head with their theology and they're just mean about it, right? So why? What's going on there? That, that's not cool. Uh, and I mean, one of the reasons I raised that, I guess we could equate that with the, the cold God or something maybe. One of the reasons I raised that is I think that is unbelievable when we consider what the doctrine of election is about. As we look at the, the way the Bible speaks about the doctrine of election, as we look at the, just the language we find in the scriptures, I think it should be unbelievably clear that this is a doctrine that should lead to joy and humility and not to arrogance, not to beating people up over the head with, you know, your theological knowledge or anything like that. And that's honestly kind of my hope for this time. I, I want to educate you. I want you to walk away with an understanding of election. But I, I deeply want you to walk away with a sense of humility and joy in light of the doctrines of grace. So, uh, but another reason uh, we actually don't have on the board, not so much with election, another thing that might come up when we talk about it is, I mean, can't we just say mystery? Can't we just step back and say, okay, we can't peer into the fathomless depths of God. So let's just, let's just say it's a mystery. We, and we don't have to, you know, deal with all the complications, the Calvinism, Arminianism, all these, these things. It can't just be a mystery. Uh, and to answer that question, I want us to look at Deuteronomy 29, 29. Moses writes, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Okay, so they're mysteries. They're secret things. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So as I said, make no mistake, there's mysteries in God. There's secret things that don't belong to us, but there are also revealed things. And Moses is saying those things belong to us. God has given them to us. And very simply, the Bible uses the words predestination and election. It uses those words. So we have to, the question is not, should we believe in election? The question is, what kind of election should we believe in? What does the Bible mean when it uses these words? They're not secret things. They are revealed. God has given it to us in the Bible so the first reason we need to talk about election is because the Bible talks about it. God is revealing something. For the sake of God's revelation, it matters that we have this conversation. And since it's revealed, secondly, it matters for our obedience. God has given us his word to reveal himself, to reveal his truths to us, and so that we might obey. Nothing's extraneous, like, oh, I'll just tuck that away in my theological mind. I know something more now. I'm great. No, it is meant to go from our head through our heart to our hands so that we might obey our God. 
So yes, there's controversy, there's, there's questions around it, but God has revealed it, so we need to pay attention to it, and we should also ask the question, why? I mean, God could have kept this a secret. He could have just done it this way in the mystery of his providence and not told us about election in his word. Why has he chosen to reveal it? We're going to talk about that as we go on today. Let's go ahead and let's start. We're going to just define a few terms just so we're all on the same page. I've used some of these already, uh, but I don't want us to get lost in the theological jargon. Uh, these are my definitions. They're, I think they're fairly universal. I, what I mean is I just didn't get them just out of a dictionary or anything, but I don't think there's much controversy over just these definitions. Uh, predestination is God's sovereign decrees of salvation for the elect and damnation for the reprobate. Uh, so this is the umbrella term over the other two terms that I have defined there below it. Uh, often you'll hear election and predestination just used interchangeably. I think I've already done that in the last five minutes. That's fine. But properly speaking, predestination is the umbrella category and election is a more specific uh, aspect of it. It's only half. And so election there is God's sovereign decree of salvation for those in Christ. And reprobation is the opposite, God's sovereign decree of damnation for those apart from Christ. Uh, today, we're not talking a whole lot about reprobation. If you have questions about that, we can talk about it. A few of the texts we'll, we'll get to mention it, um, but it, it is kind of part and parcel with, with the whole uh, doctrine here. Uh, and so let's, let's go ahead, let's dive in. Let's, let's kind of set the stage by considering the options that we have. Uh, so, as I said, if indeed the Bible talks about predestination and election, the question is not, should we believe in it? The question is, what should we believe about it? What does the Bible say? What kind of doctrine of election should we hold? And very helpfully, with 2,000 years of church history, we've really narrowed it down to two options that aren't heresy. There are plenty of heresies. We'll talk about some of those. Uh, but within the, the bounds of Orthodox Christian belief, there are two views that you are allowed to hold. There is obviously diversity within these two, uh, but I would say fundamentally everything, every doctrine of election someone could hold will fit into one of these two or it will be heresy. Uh, two options you may be familiar, you may have heard these names, are called Arminianism, named after Jacob Arminius, Arminius, who was from the 16th century, and Calvinism, named after a French reformer, John Calvin. Uh, it is important to note both of those names are anachronistic. There were Arminians before Jacob Arminius lived. There were Calvinists before John Calvin lived. Uh, but we've just kind of associated the, the, title, the categories with those two men. They didn't invent the theology. Uh, and one thing we need to know before we look at these two is there are godly, well-meaning Christians on both sides of this debate. That is abundantly clear from church history. I hope it's clear in your own experience. This is why we don't require you to be a Calvinist to be a member at Parkway, because we think you can be a Christian even if you don't agree with us, even though all of the leadership holds to Calvinist doctrine. Uh, I think, yeah, so you'll, I'll just skip down to the middle of those two categories. I have some notable adherence there for you. Uh, I mean, on both sides, these are men I respect tremendously, uh, even though I disagree with half of them. Uh, in, in fact, uh, during the First Great Awakening, which was a revival in America that had a very Calvinistic flavor to it, there were two big evangelists who disagreed over this doctrine. There was George Whitfield and there was John Wesley, who I, I have there under notable adherence for Arminianism. Uh, and they, yeah, they, they disagreed, and they knew each other, and they didn't agree with 
how they understood God's sovereignty over salvation. And one of Whitfield's followers, who apparently didn't like John Wesley, came up to George Whitfield and he said to him, do you think we're going to see John Wesley in heaven? And my understanding of kind of how he phrased it was, we're not really going to see him in heaven, right? And George Whitfield responded, I have a quote. He said, uh, yes, you're right. We won't see John Wesley in heaven. He will be so close to the throne of God and we will be so far away that we won't be able to see him. And I love the humility in Whitfield there. I think he's saying, John Wesley loves Jesus. John Wesley loves Jesus more than me. He's wrong about this in Whitfield's estimation, but man, the essential matters, the, first, the things of first importance, to use the language of 1 Corinthians 15, John Wesley's God, and he's going to be closer to the throne of God. It's just kind of his metaphorical way of saying, right, like, man, he is closer to Jesus than me, even though we disagree. And I hope that's the humility we all have when it comes to this doctrine as well. Um, I will say, uh, when you look at the notable adherents on each side there, this is not, I, I've done four of each. That's not really reflective of church history. Uh, for what it's worth, uh, church history is heavily, heavily in favor of the Calvinist side of things. You will almost, you'll be very hard pressed to find a major theologian in church history who wouldn't hold to some kind of Calvinistic or Augustinian understanding of these things. Even like, I mean, Billy Graham, C.S. Lewis, are great. I love those guys. They're, they're not really theologians necessarily. Lewis more than Billy Graham, of course, but uh, the, the more uh, theologically oriented uh, members of church history are almost all on the Calvinist side. That, that, that doesn't mean it's right, but I think it's worth something. Uh, so let's get into each of these. Uh, so we'll st- I have there at the top the thing these two agree on. Everyone says, those who choose God were chosen by God. That is not up for debate. Everyone agrees with that statement. Those who choose God were chosen by God. Why? Well, because the Bible very clearly talks about God choosing, and it very clearly calls us to respond to the gospel. So we can't get rid of either one of those. Those are both in the scriptures. So we have to say, those who choose God were chosen by God. The disagreement arises when we come to the question, what's the cause and what's the effect? What's the cause and what's the effect? For Arminians, God chose us because we choose him. God chose us because we choose him. And for Calvinists, we choose God because he chose us. Let's just walk through each of these uh, columns I have there for you to kind of get the options in front of us. So Arminianism, for Arminians rather, election is based on foreknowledge. It's based on foreknowledge. So they would read predestination passages in the Bible and say, here's how this works. God looked ahead in eternity past and he saw you know, me putting my faith in Jesus. And so in, res- in response to that, knowing that was coming, the cause, the effect was him writing my name down in the book of life. He elected me because he saw that I would choose him. So our faith is the cause his choice is the response. Uh, you can kind of think of it like God has this you know, big time telescope looking ahead, which he does. He's, he's, he knows all things, uh, but fundamentally my choice is the cause of his. It's based on foreknowledge. Second uh, aspect of Arminians, Arminianism to know is it is a fundamentally synergistic view of salvation. Now, 
There are some Arminians who would disagree with that language. I don't think they can get away from it. Uh, It is a synergistic view of salvation. What that means is that conversion depends in some measure on a cooperation between us and God. So there's a, Armenians have, they'll talk about prevenient grace, which just means the grace that goes before. And what that means is it's, a, it's an enabling grace. It's how God gets you to the point where you decide to believe or not believe. So God brings you to a place of decision. He brings you to a place uh, where you can choose him. Uh, the image uh, that is sometimes used, actually on both sides, uh, is of someone drowning at sea and God throws them a life vest. Right? So God does everything necessary to save, but our free will is us reaching out and grabbing the life vest. So we, were, we would be drowning, but we have to reach out and grab it. God did everything. He threw it. He put it there for us to grab, but we still have to reach out and grab it. So that is, there's a cooperation there. right? And it, I mean, maybe it's 99% God, 1% man, but it's still not 100-0 either direction, right? So there's a, some synergism to what's taking place. Uh, third there, I have notable adherents. I've talked about that. I love these guys. I think they're all wrong. Uh, fourth, uh, the heresy that Armenians need to watch out for is something called Pelagianism. So uh, sometimes Armenianism will be slandered as semi-Pelagianism. Uh, I think if you're a, if you're a well-thought-out Armenian, you're not a Pelagian, but you need to be very careful You need to be careful. So Pelagianism is something that goes back to the days of Augustine in the fourth century. Uh, And uh, there's kind of two aspects of Pelagianism that are relevant here. There's a lot of problems with Pelagianism. But anytime you talk about free will and you start putting hope in free will, you're going to run into the danger of Pelagianism because Pelagianism, one, has a very optimistic view of the human condition. So it's not just that we're or it's not that we're sinners and we are, you know, we sin as a result of our corrupt nature. It's more we're moral blank slates and we might choose the, ba- the wrong thing sometimes, but we could choose the right thing too. That's Pelagianism. So it's, it's, a, it's a far too optimistic view of our sin nature. It would say that we're capable of making righteous choices. And the second thing about Pelagianism I've kind of goes with that is it just leans so heavily on free will that salvation is ultimately really in your hands. It depends on you. You are the author of your own salvation. You, you need to be good enough. You need to will the right things. And Pelagianism is not a position that a Christian can hold. Uh, there's, uh, so those are, those are those things, if, if you're leaning towards Arminianism, if you are an Arminian, those are things you need to watch out for. There are dangers to fall off on that side. Okay, and then on the other side, you've got Calvinism, and the crowds went wild. Uh, so in the Calvinist view, uh, election is, embra- is based on sheer grace. That's an important language, sheer grace. Arminians would say, yes, salvation's about grace. Of course it is. Calvinists are going to emphasize that grace is sheer grace. It's pure grace. So it is not anything in us that is the basis of God's election. Nothing not our good works, not even our ability to have faith or make a decision for Christ. That is something that is ultimately in the hands of God. So yes, Calvinists believe faith is necessary for salvation, but that faith itself is a gift. It's something God gives. It doesn't come out of our own hearts naturally. 
It's something that God has to put into our hearts and fan into flame because it's not something that we have in ourselves. It's a gift. So Calvinism is a fundamentally monergistic view of salvation. I think Armenians have to say at the end of the day that Jesus makes salvation possible. Calvinists are saying Jesus actually accomplishes salvation. It's not just, hey, he did it, now the gates are open, you got to walk through them. It's he takes you from the starting line to the finish. He carries you all the way. His grace is actually effective. He does this work. He doesn't just make it possible for you to be saved. He saves. Uh, for this one, I put some code words there for you. You will also hear Calvinism called the doctrines of grace, reformed soteriology, tulip is associated with it. Uh, those are good to know. Uh, if you tell someone you're a Calvinist, they might hit you. But if you use these languages, these, these code words, they won't know what they mean and they won't hit you. So it's okay. Then uh, fourth there, I have just notable adherents. Uh, you can see the best way to become a famous theologian is to be named John. That's it. That's all you got to do. Pretty easy. Uh, the heresy to avoid here is a serious danger. It is a very serious danger, and it is something in a church that you're going to hear Calvinism from the pulpit. You're going to hear it taught in theological equipping class. It's the danger we are going to move more prone to, and that danger is hyper-Calvinism. Uh, that's kind of a broad term, but basically hyper-Calvinism is any kind of uh, uh, overdoing of the Calvinist doctrines. Uh, it's kind of hard to describe it any other way, but for example... Calvinists believe, if you are a, a good biblical Calvinist, you should believe the gospel offer should be offered freely and openly to all people. But hyper-Calvinists would say, God's going to save people, so evangelism doesn't really matter. God, God's going to save them. We don't, we don't need to really worry about it, uh, which is a fundamental understanding of the Scriptures. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, Hyper-Calvinists have a fatalistic robotic view of salvation, uh, which, so, so yeah, it's, it's almost like, you know, God just, you know, works us like a puppet and makes us say things we don't actually believe or mean. And, you know, I believe in Jesus. Whoa, I didn't mean to say that. What in the world? No, it, that's not how we experience faith. And that's not how the Bible talks about faith. We still experience it like a choice. It is, in a sense, on a human level, a choice, but it is a choice that God works sovereignly. So Calvinists believe God is effective in that work. He is sovereign over that choice. He's not a puppet master who just makes us do things. Uh, and hyper-Calvinism ultimately, like Pelagianism, goes wrong in the fact that it is presenting to us a God other than the God of the Bible. That's fundamentally what it does. So Pelagianism presents to us a weak and powerless God who's just really hoping we'll figure this thing out and save ourselves. And hyper-Calvinism has a cold and distant God, a God who pulls names out of a hat and says, well, this one's saved. Uh, I, I, you have to excuse the expression, but it's, it's almost like hyper-Calvinists view God as, as playing this cosmic game of duck, duck, damned. Uh, that, that's, that's the idea. It's, it's just this cold, distant, uncaring, sure, we'll save this one, we'll send that one to hell, uh, is, is how hyper-Calvinists believe. That, that's their view of God fundamentally. But as I want us to see in the Bible is that election is nothing like that. Election is nothing like that. Election is all about God setting his love on us in his son. 
There's nothing cold or robotic about that. We'll get to that more later on. Let's go ahead and let's move to the scriptures in particular now. And the first thing I want to do on that is set the stage. Uh, I want to set the stage so we can see what problem election solves. So this is, this is important, right? Because if, if you go to the doctor's office and you know, you, you're visually impaired and they give you some crutches, you're like, well, thanks for nothing. Right? That, that wasn't the problem. Or if you go and you, know, you, you go to your friend and say, I'm hungry, and they're, here, here, here you can have my car. Okay, I'm, I'm hungry. I need you know, some raisin canes right now. This is, that's what I, I need to eat food. The, the problem determines the solution. So we need to understand the problem. Jared, next week, will give a much more robust theology of sin and theological equipping, but let's just look at a few passages. I just pulled, this is not exhaustive by any means, just pulled a few passages out of the scriptures. This is how the Bible talks about sin. Look at the state it puts us in. Romans 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 1 Corinthians 2, the natural person does not accept the spirit, things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ephesians 2, probably the most famous, most relevant passage here. You were dead in the trespass and sins in which you once walked. I hope it is very, very clear from those passages how serious the problem is. Those last two metaphors. We are blind and dead apart from Christ. That's, that's, that's pretty extreme. Those, those aren't things you can resolve yourself. Dead people can't make themselves alive again. Blind people can't make themselves see again. These are binary things. And you're, you're blind or you're not. You're dead or you're not. Right? There's no in-between. It's not you know, the princess bride. Right? He's only mostly dead. That's not how this works. Right? It's dead or alive. So if we're dead in our sins, then effectual grace is a theological necessity. It's a theological necessity. God does not make dead people 99% alive and then they have to do the last 1%. You're dead or you're alive. Either God brings you to life or he doesn't. In his song, Election, you knew this was coming, uh, Shai Lin uh, makes this point. Uh, in light of that kind of famous Armenian illustration of being lost at sea and asking God to throw you a rope, uh, he says this, some people say we were drowning in the ocean, barely floating until God threw us the rope then. Our free will helped us as we groped. Our faith is the hand that grabbed the rope and God put us back in the boat. Nope, without apology, I deny that analogy. Reality, we were dead at the bottom of the sea. I was a swollen corpse with hope no more until Jehovah the Lord dove from the shore to the ocean floor. He brought me out, not an act of my volition, breathed life into my lungs and didn't ask for my permission. That's fundamentally what election is saying. The problem was that bad and God's grace, what God has done in Christ is that. It is effective. It actually accomplishes our salvation. All right, let's move now to probably the most famous text about election, Romans chapter 9. We're going to do kind of a deep dive. We're just going to walk through the scriptures very simply here. I just want, I mean, I'm not plucking verses out of context and saying they say what I want them to say. This is just what Romans 9 is about. 
when you come to Romans 9, uh, Paul is addressing a, a theological problem. Basically, what, what it, their people are realizing is the Messiah has come, the Jewish Messiah has come, and the Jews have mostly rejected him. There's all these Gentiles following the Jewish Messiah. What do we, what do, we do with that? Have, have, has God's promises failed? Why do some believe and some don't? Verse 6, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Oh, good. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So Paul, he sets up a distinction, two groups here. Those, there's those descended from Israel. We might call them ethnic Israel, the bloodline descendants. And then there's those who belong to Israel. We could call them true Israel. We could call them believing Israel. And those two groups are not the same. They're not the same. He repeats the point, verse 7, right? There's children of Abraham. There's offspring of Abraham. They're not the same. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return, and Sarah, Abraham's wife, shall have a son. Again, there we see the two groups, right? Children of the flesh, children of the promise, unbelieving Israel, believing Israel. The question is, what's the basis for the difference? What separates them? Why do some believe, belong, and some don't? Well, kind of Paul uses two different families to show this. He starts with Abraham, who had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael, both of his kids, but only Isaac inherited the promises of God. So there's, again, two groups. One believe, one, one doesn't. Uh, Ishmael was not an inheritor of the promises. And if you're following along, if you're a Jew, you're probably like, well, hang on a second. I mean, Ishmael was Hagar's son, so that, that doesn't work, okay? We know they had different moms, so it makes sense that one would belong and one doesn't. Well, Paul's like, yeah, okay, well, look at this, verse 10. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Pause there, I know we're mid-sentence, but look at what he's doing now. So Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau, and they were twins. If you want to do a test, the best test you can do has twins in it because they have the same genetic makeup or whatever. I don't know science, but you know, they're like the same. So if you want to have a, a, the fewest variables in a test, you pick twins. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, let's look at two twins. One believed and one didn't. One belonged, one didn't. What explains that discrepancy? Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who wills, she was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. So Paul ultimately roots the difference in something outside the twins. He's very clear. It's not something good or bad that either of them did. It's not that, you know, uh, Jacob was more spiritually aware. He just had a greater sense for the things of God or that he was smarter. Or he made better decisions. No, 
It was not because of anything in them. It was because of him who calls. That's what made the difference. That's why one believed and one didn't. And maybe you're thinking, hang on, is that, is that fair? Well, Paul's reading your mind again. Verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 16. I don't know if Paul can make it any clearer. What does the result, or what, what does it hinge on? What display, explains the discrepancy, the difference between those who belong and those who don't, those who believe and those who don't? It's not what you desire or what you do. It's not will or exertion that makes the difference. It all depends on God who has mercy. It is in his hands. It is by his will. Uh, then verse 17, Paul makes a point about Pharaoh being hardened. It's a point about reprobation. Uh, verse 18 kind of just sums this up. He has mercy on whom he wills. He hardens whomever he wills. Very clearly, God's will is the difference. And then Paul anticipates another objection. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, where are we? He takes away our control. Is that fair? Once again, same questions are popping up. Paul knows these questions exist. What does he say? Verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now notice there, Paul doesn't answer the question. Is this fair? What about me? Can I have control? Paul doesn't answer the question. He doesn't even you know, dive into metaphysical philosophy. He doesn't fall back on it. It's a mystery. He appeals to God's right to be God. God's the potter. We're the clay. He's free and sovereign. That's his right because he's God. I think Paul is showing us in part that one of the reasons there's so much hostility to the doctrine of election is an unwillingness to let God be God. Fundamentally, it often comes down to that. It's not universal. Like, if you don't agree with me, you're arrogant. I don't mean that. But, but no doubt, sometimes we don't like election because God gets to be God and we don't. God gets to be sovereign and free because that's his, his divine prerogative. We, we want to be in control. We want, you know, entrepreneurial self-determinism because we're Americans. But the prerogative of sovereign freedom belongs to God alone. So in a way, Paul, he just puts us in our place. He says, remember who you are. You're the clay. God is the potter. Who are you to question him? That's the first thing he says. But he does then engage, interestingly, in some speculation about God's purposes. Verse 22, he says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience 
vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. That's, that's ultimately his, his answer there. It's not just from the Jews, it's also from the Gentiles. But, but just notice what he's doing there. Uh, he, he's kind of speculating, right? He's saying, what if? What if this is how God decided to do things? He's not saying, you know, write this down in your systematic theology textbook. Boom, got it for you. Answer. There is some mystery here. He's saying, what if? Perhaps God's purposes of, of reprobation, his patience in bearing with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, is meant to exalt his glory and his grace to those whom, on whom he has set his love. What if that's what he's doing? Well, if it is, then we remember he's the potter and we're the clay and we can live with that. We can live with that because he's God and we're not. Okay, that was, that was our deep dive on Romans 9. Hopefully you see the point, right? God is sovereign over salvation very clearly across Romans 9. Paul's just making it as clear as he can. And you might ask, okay, we got Romans 9. Is that all we've got? Is this elsewhere in the Bible? Well, yes, a lot. I've listed a couple corroborating texts. This is by no means exhaustive. Ephesians 1, probably the other most famous passage on election. You can read that on your own time. Uh, I, just, I just underlined some of the things I want you to see. If, if we're talking about Arminianism and Calvinism, uh, if fundamentally it comes down to a synergistic view or a monergistic view, uh, what is the language the Bible uses? Does it describe our will, which gets us that last 1% or whatever, or does it describe God's will? He chose us. He predestined us according to the purpose of his will, according to the riches of his grace, according to his purpose, predestined according to the purpose of him, according to the counsel of his will. Again and again and again, it's God's will that is the cause. That's what Paul ultimately focuses on there. He won't let us get away from it. Second, and we'll come back to this several times. This is just glorious. John's gospel describes election as the father's gift to his son. Look at John 6, 37. There's so, I mean, this is a, we could preach 10 sermons on this verse. All that the Father gives me will come to me. There's that, that certainty, which is glorious and beautiful, will come to me. There's that effectiveness, right? And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's that assurance, which is wonderful, but don't miss this. All that the Father gives me. That's what election is about. It's about God the Father giving a gift to his son. And I want to ask you, is God the kind of father who gives a potential gift? Is God the kind of father who gives a, a possible gift? As it, it like, it, we still need to reach out and grab it. And man, if we don't, God's, you know, Jesus is going to have a lame birthday party because there's not going to be many gifts there. No. God is the kind of father who gives, an, a, a, he accomplishes this. It's a real gift. It's a sure thing because he loves his son and he has set his love on us in his son. He doesn't bring us just to a point of decision. He brings us all the way. Uh, next I have under C there, uh, just, I won't read really many of these, just a, a collection of passages showing you that election, God's sovereignty, not just in salvation, but in everything, is just the underlying assumption of I mean, every biblical author. It's not like, it's like this was Paul's thing. Paul really liked it. But Matthew's like, what? what? Paul, what are you talking about? No, no, no. This is, just, this is just how the biblical authors talk about reality. 
It's under God's sovereignty. Paul understands his salvation like that. Uh, Peter uh, understands his audience as those who are elect, who God has caused to be born again. Caused to be born again, not who God you know, brought to a point of decision and then they had to do the rest. No, God caused them to be born again. Uh, James, I'll read this one. I love this one. Because uh, we think of James and Paul, like we pretend they don't get along, which is a misunderstanding of both Paul and James. But James had this same view. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So in other words, James doesn't think you can go to the grocery store apart from God's will. What do you think James thinks about salvation? It couldn't be clearer. There's other texts here. Matthew, Jared's going to preach on that in about 45 minutes. So wait for that one. Uh, Luke, uh, the author of Acts, uh, describes Paul's security on the basis of election. I think he's in Corinth here in Acts 18. Uh, and, you know, Paul just shows up in the city and God tells him, I have many in this city who are my people. And it's like, hang on a second. Paul just got there. Who, who, are, who are you talking about? Oh, he's talking about the elect. <laughs> that Paul is going to preach the gospel and there's going to be a response of faith because God has ensured it. Because God is sovereign. I have people here, Paul, who are, my, who are mine. You don't have to worry about it. You'll be okay. Just keep preaching the gospel. All right. Uh, and that's all the kind of biblical theological stuff we got to do there. In light of all that, I want to say, what is it? Five, six, five. Five things about the doctrine of election. This will be the remainder of our time. Uh, first, the doctrine of election is biblical. Hopefully that's clear at this point. I, as I've tried to show you and everything so far, the doctrine of election is biblical. Uh, it's a fundamental mistake if we ask, do I like this? Or does, does this you know, comport with the kind of God I would like to worship? It's the wrong question. It's, it's not about what you think. It's about what God has revealed. And if it is biblical, then God has revealed it and we ought to submit to it. As Calvin himself says, <coughs> our first aim must be to know only the doctrine of election as it is set out in God's word. I think some of you have heard me say, Calvin doesn't want you to be a Calvinist. He wants you to believe in the Bible. The doctrine of election is biblical. Second, the doctrine of election is difficult. We need to admit this. It's a difficult doctrine. There are really good, tough questions that this raises. We've, we've raised some of them already. Free will and evangelism. Let's talk about those two. Uh, so uh, the kind of common Armenian slogan about free will goes like this. Love is impossible without free will. So that's what they would say. You, ha you have to have free will to be able to choose God because love is impossible without free will. And there's several problems with that statement. First, I hope you can see the heart of the statement is totally backwards. Whose love are we talking about? Whose love is, are we referring to when we say love is impossible without free will? We're referring to our love, our love for God. The gospel is not about our love for God. The gospel is about God's love for us. It's about God's freedom in setting his grace and his love on us. So it's, it's just backwards. God is free. He freely chose to love us. That's what election is about, not about us choosing him. But it does raise the, an important question. What, do we have free will? Do we have free will? What do we do with, with free will? Well, the answer to that question, first thing you have to say is, what do you mean by free will? What do you mean by free will? If you mean 
We make choices and we are morally responsible for those choices. Yes, we have free will. The Bible is very clear about that. But if you mean libertarian free will, to use kind of a more technical term, or uh, autonomous, uninfluenced free will, in that we can decide whatever we want, we're, we're uninfluenced by anything, then absolutely not. The Bible talks about you know, God's freedom to work his sovereign will. You know, he does whatever he pleases. But when it talks about our will, it does not use language of freedom. It uses language of bondage, of slavery. Look at John 8. This is just Jesus talking. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. It's pretty clear. You want to talk about our will? It is in bondage. We don't have any kind of libertarian free will to do whatever we want. We can do good things. We can do bad things. No, we are slaves to sin. Now, here's kind of how I've illustrated this. Some of you might find this familiar if we've talked about this. Uh, but imagine you have a panda and a wolf. If, you know, you have a zoo in your backyard. I don't know. Uh, you have a panda and a wolf, and you put two plates in front of each of them. You put a plate of a nice, juicy filet mignon steak and some less juicy bamboo, right? And you put it in front of the panda. Which one's the panda going to eat? Bamboo, because that's what pandas eat, if you didn't know that. That's what pandas eat. Which one is the wolf going to eat? The steak. Why? Why does every single time you put the same two plates in front of the panda, it will make the same choice every time? Always the bamboo. It doesn't care about the steak. Why? Every time you put the same two plates in front of the wolf, does it always choose the steak? It doesn't care about the bamboo. Because their nature determines their choice. We have a sin nature. Our choices are influenced by our depravity. Sure, I mean, the panda and the wolf, are they free to choose either one? Yeah. Which one will they always choose? The one that their nature has determined. So you could say, we choose wickedness freely. We're free and we choose wickedness. Our own nature, our own will, by our own nature, our own will, we will never choose God, but election is about God putting a new will in us to love and serve him. Uh, another difficulty we talked about, what about evangelism? Uh, I, I think this is an important question because the Bible talks about evangelism. The Bible talks about the sovereignty of God. Uh, I do have a a more, a longer metaphysical answer to this question. If you want that one, we can talk. It'd probably be easier to get coffee or something. It takes a little while. Uh, but I'm not going to bother giving it to you now. I just want to show you that the Bible very clearly sees no conflict between these two. And neither does church history. So the Bible, as we've already said, exhorts us to share the gospel and it tells us God is sovereign over the response. So the parable of the sower, which I preached a few months ago, the, if you were there for that sermon, I think the main point of the parable of the sower is the doctrine of election, is that God is sovereign over the results. But you know, the sower's not going around like, is this, is this good soil? Is this elect soil? Oh, it doesn't look like it. I'll, I'll sow the seed over here. No, you're just sowing the seed indiscriminately. Okay, God's sovereign over the response. I'm just gonna keep sowing the seed. That's, that's what we're called to do. And the passage Jared's preaching today, Jesus makes a very Calvinistic statement, which is very anachronistic. He just says a Jesus statement, but you know what I mean. 
And when we get to Matthew 28, he gives the great commission. So Jesus saw no conflict between the two. So yeah, it's, it's worth it. There are helpful kind of philosophical ways to talk about how to accommodate these two things together, but we, we can't ignore the fact that the Bible just clearly teaches both. And at a certain point, that should be enough. And then I'll just say church history has followed that pattern again and again, going back to Calvin himself. Geneva, where Calvin pastors, was the first great missionary hub of the Reformation. Uh, if, if you want a, a very detailed 12-page paper on that. I wrote one in seminary. I'd be happy to send it to you. Uh, but, I mean, I think it's good, but you might be bored. But Geneva was exporting missionaries like crazy. Calvin wanted the gospel to get out. He wasn't like, oh, it's only, God will save the elect. We should do nothing. No, he had no problem with it. And there's, I mean, a million other examples. I've listed some there for you from uh, historical uh, more historical missionaries to the modern Calvinist movement, which is very, very missions and evangelism oriented. Uh, the very simple fact is some of the church's most zealous evangelists have been fervent Calvinists. That's just a historical fact. All right, third, the doctrine of election is humbling. Uh, it's worth asking, as I said at the beginning, why does God reveal this to us? Why does God take the time? He had you know, this much space to give us his infinite perfect word why did he spend so much of it talking about election? The secret things belong to him. The revealed things belong to us. And I think the purpose that it serves to, I mean, put it a little bit bluntly, is election puts us in our place. It puts us in our place. It shows us how bad our sin is, that we had no hope on our own, and it shows us how firmly our destiny resides in the hands of God that we can't do anything on our own. We don't have what it takes, and that is unbelievably humbling. So it is a, a terrible shame that Calvinism is so often associated with you know, big-brained theological jerks when Calvinists should be the most joyful, the most humble people in the world, saying, I am clay in the potter's hands. I have, I, none of this is from me. It's all of him. Calvinism is humbling. I think God reveals it so that we might see that. Fourth, in a similar vein, the doctrine of election is unbelievably encouraging. It's unbelievably encouraging. I, I think we have a problem. Maybe it's the theological jargon we use, you know, reprobation, monergism, all this kind of language. And it just, again, it, it feels like a, a cold, distant, robotic God. Everything's cold and, and clinical. And again, we could fall into the hyper-Calvinist air of, of God playing this cosmic game of duck-duck-damned, right? And it just feels cold and distant. Uh, but let me just beg you, brothers and sisters, that if, that's, if that's how you feel, and that's, what, that's your sense of what this doctrine is showing you, just fix your eyes on the scriptures and how God talks about his election. It is, it is through and through about him setting his love on you. It is, I mean, it's about a father giving a gift to a son. Does this sound cold and heartless? Does that, does that sound like any kind of like distant robotic God? No, I mean, it, it sounds glorious and warm and wonderful. There's a, a song my wife sometimes likes to play uh, when uh, I asked her permission if I could say this, and she said yes. Uh, sometimes she likes to get emotional and cry about how much she loves our kids. Does anyone else's wife do that? Is it just mine? No, yeah. She's like, I just want to turn this. She's a playlist called like, I love my kids. And she just listens to it when she feels like crying. I don't get it. But anyway, uh, there's a song on there. I think it's a classic. It's called, How Long Will I Love You? 
don't know if you guys are familiar with that, but it's, it's very, very sweet. It has these beautiful images of this kind of unending love. So it, it goes, how long will I love you? As long as stars are above you and longer if I can. It's, it's just this beautiful imagery of, of basically saying, my love is as permanent as the universe. But election is about a love that goes far deeper and lasts far longer than that. Ephesians chapter 1. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. How long will God love you? Eternity past to eternity future. He elected you to adoption, to be his child before time even existed. How do you know God will never stop loving you? He never started. From eternity past, before time existed, he set his love on you in his son. I, mean, I don't know how to, there's no way to talk about that. There's nothing cold or clinical about that. There's nothing, you know, infor- or, you know, formal and kind of what, I don't know, I'm running out of adjectives to use. It's about God's love. And this is the heart of what we want you to see this whole semester in theological equipping class. I mean, you can listen to a whole spiel on Romans 9 and fist pump, yeah, those dumb Arminians, I hate them, right? And if you did that and you walked away without the flame of God's electing love in your heart, that would be a tragedy, That would be a tragedy. You could fill your brain with this stuff. And if you don't feel the love of God that it shows you, you've missed it. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him, in his son. Your salvation is the father's gift to his son. Sometimes, you know, people worry about assurance when it comes to election. It feels discouraging, and I just, I don't understand that uh, because I think the, the point very clearly is election is about your union with Jesus, and there's nothing more assuring of your salvation than that. If, you're, if you are united to Christ by faith, that's the result. Don't worry about the cause. As Calvin says, if we're in communion with Christ, we have proof clear and strong enough to show our names are written in the book of life. Election should foster assurance, not work against it. Uh, fifth and finally, election is absolutely God-glorifying. Uh, you can read these verses for yourself. We don't have time to go through all of them. I'll just highlight one here at the end. Throughout the scriptures, election is again and again and again and again and again and again tied to God's glory. And one of the clearest places is Exodus 33. Moses says to God, he makes a request, please show me your glory. And God's response is this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, Moses says, God, show me your glory. And God responds, let me tell you about the doctrine of election. Watch my free mercy on sinners and you will see how glorious I am. 
So we are left to marvel with Paul, Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him, through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray and then we'll take a few questions. Father, we praise you for your love. And your love is an electing love. It's not a vague, half-hearted, partial love, but a love that is full and that actually takes dead sinners to life in your son. And we pray we would bask in those glories. We would rest in the knowledge that your grace is sufficient, that we are not holding on to you so that we might let go, but you are holding on to us with a love that you have for your own son. And I pray, God, that you would give us humility and joy as we consider that and keep us, God, from being theological jerks who are bashing this uh, over the head of others and help us to just rest in the wonderful truths that you have shown us in your word. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.